take your Bibles again and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. In the green church Bibles, that's page 1219, and in the large print Bibles, 1890. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. And if we were to try and sum up this passage in just one phrase, we could put it like this. Let's get serious. A pastor called Edward Donnelly says this about the Christian life. There should be a pervasive seriousness in our thinking and behavior. This does not mean that believers are to be morose. We experience a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rejoice evermore. We have fun, we laugh, we play, we enjoy to the full the good gifts of God. But there is a difference between happiness and frivolity. Our lives must be characterized by an underlying seriousness, a gravity. Life is a wonderful gift. The joy of our salvation is a beautiful thing. Our own goofiness is pretty amusing. It's healthy to have a good laugh at ourselves. All those things are true, 
But as Christians, we dare not treat life as if it's a joke. Life is a serious business. That's what Peter is getting at in these verses. The passage divides in two, and in both sections, Peter calls us to live with a serious attitude. First, with regard to sin, and second, with regard to glorifying God. In verses 1 to 6, he tells us we are to get serious about sin because sin's time is over. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Verse 1 says, Christ suffered in the body. And Peter has mentioned this several times already in the letter. Back in chapter 1, he said, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But it was with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. On the cross, Jesus redeemed us. He bought us out of our slavery to an empty, sinful way of life. Then in chapter 2, again speaking about Jesus, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. On the cross, our sins were laid on Jesus. He was punished for our sins. Not only so we could be forgiven, but so we could be healed of our fatal attraction to sin. Then last week in chapter... Excuse me, in chapter 3 we heard last week that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. On the cross, Jesus suffered once for sins, meaning once for all time. If we are trusting in Jesus, there's no more payment needed for our sins. And notice why Jesus did that. It was to bring us to God. So we could come near to the perfectly holy, perfectly sinless God. The three statements we've just looked at are the background background to what we read here in chapter 4, verse 1. Christ suffered in the body. Peter has already told us three times why Christ suffered. It was to deal with our sin. And he did that perfectly. As far as Jesus is concerned, he is through with our sin. He's finished with it. And Peter says we are to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. As those who belong to Jesus, we're also to consider ourselves finished with sin. What does that mean? Does it mean we're to consider ourselves perfect? Are we to believe that we've arrived? 
<clears throat> no, it means we are to take seriously the fact that Jesus poured out his life to deliver us from sin. And when you and I do that, we will have a new attitude to sin. It won't seem anymore like a bit of harmless fun. It won't seem natural anymore. It will seem like a relic from our past. A relic that we don't want to touch with a barge pole anymore. So this is not about playing mental games with ourselves. This is about seeing things as they really are. Jesus suffered to deliver us from sin, and as we think about sin then, we are to arm ourselves with that perspective. We talk about arming ourselves when we're speaking about a fight, a battle. And turning away from sin will be a fight for us. It will be a battle right up to the day Jesus Christ returns. But you and I will have much more success in that fight if we stop thinking of sin as just who I am. And if we start thinking of it as something that's had its day in my life. It used to be normal for me. But now it's like an old abuser who used to have his way with me. But now I've been delivered from his power and I don't have to do what he says anymore. One of the main ways we need to get serious as Christians is by living in the light of the fact that sin's time is over because Jesus dealt with it. If you and I carry on excusing our sin and flirting with our sin as if it's an old girlfriend or boyfriend we like to keep in touch with, if we treat sin like that, then we're not taking seriously what Jesus did for us. He endured a bloody death to free us from sin. And if that's true, then we better not think of sin as an old flame we can have fun with on the side. Maybe that's how we have been thinking of sin. But it's time to think differently. Verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. <clears throat> We've noticed in previous weeks, it's unlikely that the first readers of this letter were Jews who had become Christians. Not many of them anyway. It's more likely these people had a Gentile background. And this is another place where we see that. If Peter had been writing to former Jews... He would still have had plenty of sins to mention. There'd just have been different sins from these ones. There'd have been the sins of upright religious people. Sins like pride and self-righteousness. The desire to be applauded and recognized as being a cut above everyone else. When we read the four New Testament Gospels, we find Jesus challenging the Jews for those kinds of sins. But here it's different. Peter knows his audience. He mentions the kind of sins they needed to be done with. 
And you and I need to know ourselves. For some of us, sexual sins and drunkenness have been a big part of our lives. We have been wild living people. And so we have to recognize that for what it is. It's an empty way of life. But for others of us, we've never been drunk and we haven't much idea what goes on at an origin. And maybe we're quite proud of that. Maybe we imagine that makes us much better people than those other people. And maybe we even reflect on our upstanding life and think God is pretty lucky to have us on his team. In that case, when we hear Peter saying sin's time is over, we have to apply that to our religious sins of looking down on others. We have to recognize ourselves in the Pharisee Jesus talked about. The man who stood in the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. You can read that parable in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus made it very clear, God did not share the Pharisee's high opinion of himself. What God wanted was for the Pharisee to recognize his own ugly pride and pray the same prayer the tax collector was praying over in the corner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the fact is, whether our characteristic sins have been pagan ones or religious ones, they're still sins. They still put us in need of God's mercy. And his mercy is available through Jesus. Jesus paid with his life to deal with our sin. And that means once we have come to God for mercy, we need to arm ourselves with a new perspective. If Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to deliver us from sin and bring us to God, then we don't just go on as we were before. When we're tempted by our old sins, whether they're sins of debauchery or sins of pride, when that temptation comes, we get serious about the fact that sin's time is over. We've wasted enough time already living that way. It's time now to live for the will of God. And none of our sins are the will of God. Peter goes on to say sin's time is over not only because Jesus dealt with it, but also because judgment day is coming. Look at verse 4. They, that's the pagans around you, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. But live according to God in regard to the spirit. Whether people around you happen to be sinning in outrageous ways or respectable ways, it's usually true that they don't like it 
when you refuse to join in. Maybe it's a conversation about someone that's really just a character assassination of that person. Maybe it's looking at videos that do nothing but feed lust. Whatever the sin is, people will often get annoyed if you won't participate. They may even heap abuse on you because you refuse to sin with them. But Peter says, don't let that pressure get to you. Remember, judgment day is coming. Both the living and the dead will face God the judge. Talking about the living and the dead is a way of saying absolutely everyone. Every person who's ever lived. When we consider the fact that each one of us will stand before God, doesn't that make other people's opinions seem pretty irrelevant? Doesn't it make us a whole lot less concerned about trying to fit in with other people? Who cares what they think of us? Who cares if they heap abuse on us? Aren't we much more interested in a well done from God? As Christians, when we think about meeting our Father in heaven, doesn't it make us want to turn our back on sin? When we think of that meeting, doesn't it help us to arm ourselves with the attitude that sin's time is over? And if you have not yet come to Jesus to have your sin forgiven, can you not feel the urgency of this? Without Jesus, you are not ready to stand before God the judge. Verse 6 is a little bit difficult to translate, but it makes pretty good sense, I think, if we just remember the context. Peter is talking about this tension between the two audiences that we all face. There's the human audience who might heap abuse on us for turning from sin, and there's the living God who calls us to turn from sin. In verse 6, Peter is saying the audience that really matters has always been God. So when it says the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, the idea is, even before Jesus came, God was calling people to trust him and obey him. No matter what other people thought, no matter what abuse other people heaped on God's people, God has always called men and women to treat him as the only audience that matters. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a long list of examples of that. People who cared more about trusting God and living to please him than they did about pleasing other people. All of them before Jesus came. People like Moses. We're told Moses chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God in Egypt rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews says, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses looked ahead to the day he would meet God, and that made the fleeting pleasure of sin seem completely worthless. It made the treasures of Egypt and the high opinions of the Egyptians 
seem very insignificant. And if we bring that understanding then to the rest of verse 6, what it's saying is, though as God's people, we may be counted worthy of abuse by those around us, those who are judging by human standards in regard to the body, that is not the audience that matters. By turning our back on sin, we're pleasing the only audience that does matter. We're living according to God in regard to the Spirit. God calls us to care more about what he thinks of us than about what other people think of us. And so he wants us to look ahead to Judgment Day and decide now that sin's time is over. We're not going to bow to it. We're not going to go along with it anymore. No matter how much abuse we might get from others. When we won't join them in their sin. So far we've been called to get serious in a negative way. By turning from sin. But now in the rest of our passage, Peter gives us the positive side. As Christians, let's get serious about the fact that it's time to glorify God. First of all, by communicating with him. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. When Peter says the end of all things is near, does he mean near in terms of years or months? Does he have a precise time frame in mind? No, he means the next significant event in God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ. In terms of God's plan of redemption, you and I are living in the last act. We have been ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Only God knows the day and hour of Jesus' return, but we do know it could come at any time. That's why the New Testament writers regularly call this time the last time, or the last days. And because these are the last days, we are to get serious. Or in Peter's words, we're to be alert and of sober mind. Why? So that we may pray. One of the primary signs we are getting serious as Christians is that we start taking prayer seriously. Maybe we hear that and we immediately begin to think this is about the length of our prayers. Maybe we have the idea that long prayers equal serious prayers. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. It's not the length of our prayers that's important. It's the frequency and the attitude of our prayers. When the Apostle Paul said pray continually, he meant make prayer a part of every part of your life. Weave brief prayers through the whole day. Instead of worrying about being polished experts in prayer let's aim to be in regular communication with our father in heaven 
And our attitude in prayer should be the attitude of dependence on our loving Father. We come to him as children coming to a parent. The very best parent who just happens to hold the whole world in his hand. So let's bring our needs to him. Let's bring other people's needs to him. Let's submit our plans to him and our ambitions. Let's lay our fears out before him. Let's turn our anger over to him. Our bitter thoughts, let's turn them over to him. Let's thank him for the many good gifts he gives us during the course of every single day of our lives. It's not the length of our prayers that's important. God is glorified when you and I turn to him regularly in simple, dependent prayer. Developing this kind of communication with God is part of what it means to get serious as Christians. Richard Lovelace says this. If all church members were to intercede daily, simply for the most obvious spiritual concerns visible in their homes, their workplaces, their local churches and denominations, their nations and the world, and the total mission of the body of Christ within it, the transformation which would result would be incalculable. Is he exaggerating? Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, our prayers make a difference. When we glorify God by communicating with him instead of ignoring him, transformation happens in us and transformation happens in the world around us. If I learned to take things to God more quickly, instead of wasting my time belly aching about them and getting exasperated by them and bitter over them, if I just take them more quickly to God, I'd experience a lot more of his peace in my heart. And I'd do a lot more good in my situation as well. It's time to glorify God by communicating with him and by loving and serving one another. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. What does Peter mean in verse 8 when he says love covers over a multitude of sins? Well, he's not talking about our sin being forgiven by God. It's not that kind of covering. We've been told several times in this letter, Jesus is the one who deals with that issue. Neither is Peter talking about refusing to deal with sin, covering it up, hiding it. So what is he talking about? Well, Don Carson helps us understand what this is about. He says, the love that Peter has in mind is the patient forbearance that nips in the bud wrong actions and attitudes that if allowed to fester will attract retaliation, animosity, and ultimately dissension and division. 
This is a love that breaks the downward spiral of wounded sensibilities, hard feelings, nurtured bitterness, dissension and vendetta. The key words there are patient forbearance. Refusing to just jump straight in and retaliate. Making the decision not to bite back when someone lets us down or when someone says a harsh word to us. This is about being quick to forgive and really forgive, not set aside for a few weeks only to bring up again later. What we're talking about is the kind of love described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is supernatural love. And as Christians who have God's Holy Spirit within us, you and I are called to get serious about glorifying God through this kind of love. And we can't do this from a distance. That's why Peter says in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality just means welcoming people, usually welcoming them into our own home. Why might you and I be tempted to grumble about offering hospitality? Because hospitality costs us. It costs maybe a little bit in terms of money, but it can cost in terms of time. It might cost in terms of comfort. And even though this is talking specifically about opening our homes to brothers and sisters in Christ, even they can be tempted to take advantage of our hospitality. And Peter does not say it's wrong to put any boundaries in place in your life. He doesn't say it's wrong to keep some personal space in your life. He says, don't be so precious about your boundaries and your personal space that you treat your home like a castle with the drawbridge always drawn up. You and I cannot truly love each other if we're like that. And I need to hear this because I am a drawbridge kind of person. That's why God gave me Megan. She lowers the drawbridge sometimes. But notice how Peter doesn't limit this to some people in the church. This is for all of us. We are all called to offer hospitality. So let's make the effort. Let's think of ways we can open our homes. You don't have to put on a spread. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to vacuum behind the settee. And if it doesn't seem to go wonderfully well, it's not the end of the world. Just try again. True love covers over a multitude of sins. Even the sin of staying a bit too long. 
Peter is telling us this is serious Christianity. This is how we live when we realize the end of all things is near. We don't curl up in a ball and keep ourselves to ourselves. We demonstrate active love for one another. We serve one another. Look at verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Notice Peter assumes each one of us has a gift. God has given each one of us something to contribute to this job of loving and serving one another. Other places in the New Testament give us much fuller lists of these God-given gifts. We read one of them earlier from Romans chapter 12. But none of the lists is meant to be an exhaustive list. In fact, since we are all unique, what we have to contribute will be unique in some sense. And we are to be a good steward or a good manager of what God has entrusted to us. We're not to refuse to use our gift. Like the guy in Jesus' story, you remember, who buried his talent in the ground. He wouldn't use it. We are to put what we have to work. Not to draw attention to ourselves, not to glorify ourselves but to glorify God and benefit God's people. In verse 11, Peter mentions the gift of speaking. And he doesn't mean simply the ability to open our mouths and have a conversation. We know that because of what comes next. They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. That's a lot to live up to when you're asking for a coffee. But that's not what Peter has in mind. He doesn't mean just general conversation. What he has in mind is teaching the Bible. Whether that's in the toddler group, in Sunday school, Discoverers 116, or in here on a Sunday. Those who teach the Bible in any context should have complete confidence in their material. They are teaching the very words of God. That doesn't mean every word from their own mouth is the word of God. It means they are presenting the word of God to people. As they work hard to explain what the Bible says, they can be sure they're explaining something that is life-giving and life-sustaining. We don't have to apologize for God's word. We don't have to explain it away. We don't have to correct it. We don't have to leave out the bits we think people aren't going to like. God said his word is sharper than a double-edged sword. He said it's like a fire. He said it's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God is pretty confident in the power of his word. So you and I can be confident in it too. Those who have some ability in presenting God's word are to be good stewards of their ability. If you can do it, don't shy away from doing it. 
Don't let fear and don't let laziness cause you to neglect your gift. As you're given opportunity, use and develop your gift. It's one way you can glorify God by loving and serving the church body. What Peter says next makes things just about as all-encompassing as they could be. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Peter is purposefully keeping it non-specific. Why? Because he wants us all to focus not so much on the gift we've been given as on the one who gives us the gift. Don't focus so much on your strength, he says. Focus on God's strength. And we're to serve with that focus, verse 11, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. If you and I use our gifts with that goal in mind, then we won't become proud of our ability. And neither will we be ashamed of our ability. We won't feel we've been gypped because we can't do what that other person can do. Every gift is for God's glory, not ours. So what does it matter which gifts seem more impressive to other people. Your ability to listen sensitively to someone and to pray faithfully for them is just as vital as someone else's ability to stand at the front and preach. Your ability to put someone at ease and make them feel welcome is just as vital as someone else's ability to play beautiful music. Your ability to fix the electrics or the fire door is just as vital as someone else's ability to run a holiday club. We all work together so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Peter wants us to realize the Christian life is a serious business. It's a wonderful life. It is life to the full. And we can have a good laugh at ourselves along the way. But we are not frothy, frivolous people who think that everything's a joke. We don't fool around with sin. Because we know Jesus suffered to set us free from sin. We know the end of all things is near. We're going to meet God. And so we take our calling seriously. We're serious about communication with our God. And we're serious about loving and serving one another. We want to live for God's glory and so let's close by asking for God's help. We're going to do that as we sing, O great God of highest heaven.